Well, good morning, everyone, and thank you for inviting me to, for the third time, be part of your Poinsettia Sunday. And I said to Pastor RJ, you got it next year, man. I'm, I'm running out of sermons. So. But uh, this is such a special spot, a Sunday, and uh, I, I just I commend you for doing this kind of thing. I think it's very special. Um, and uh, I have chatted with a number of my uh, pastor colleagues uh, about this, and uh, it's interesting the reaction I get. Some think, wow, it's a really great idea, and maybe they'll do it. Others kind of wrinkle their nose and say, well, I don't know, why do you do that? But um, anyhow, it's, it's, a, it's a good thing, and I, I really enjoy it, and the uh, sanctuary looks beautiful as a result. If I was to mention the Tour de France, one name would come to mind, wouldn't it? I mean, we can't get past, as soon as we, uh, as soon as we say Tour de France, we can't get past. Lance Armstrong. And even over 20 years later, we still think of that name in spite of all the wins and winners that have happened since the debacle that was Lance Armstrong. Lance Armstrong, seven wins, cancer survivor, live strong charity, uh, claimed that he wrote clean, rode clean, he was caught. And I watched the interview with Oprah where he confessed the fact that he was riding dirty. And it was quite the... I was, I'm, I'm a bit of a cyclist myself. He was kind of my hero. Well, no longer. Hmm. He was stripped of all his medals, banned for life. He will go down in history as a fraud, as a bully, as a cheat. And some have said that this is one of the greatest scandals in sports history. Lance Armstrong did not learn the lessons of our wise old sage, Koheleth Solomon, that, taught over, that he taught over 3,000 years ago and what we're going to hear today. Lessons in wise living, successful living, skillful living, Lessons in living well in the way that God has created creation, morally, ethically, spiritually. But the lessons that we're going to look at today have to do with suffering. Suffering for the sake of the better. And so that makes them hard. Hard for a prideful man like Lance Armstrong, but also hard for people like you and me. So you've been doing a series on wisdom books, and I have talked to you about wisdom books. I've been through Job with you. I've been through Ecclesiastes with you. You had a few weeks of a break, and now, sorry, I've been through Proverbs with you, and now, a couple weeks later, uh, I'm back here to kind of take you into the book of Ecclesiastes. And we're going to look at, we're going to focus on one text in the book, and it's in harmony with uh, the point set of Sunday that we've enjoyed today. Of course, the book of Ecclesiastes, the author's name is actually Koheleth, uh, comes from a Hebrew word meaning to gather or to collect, and normally you gathered or collected in order to speak to or to preach or to teach. 
So very often you'll see at the beginning of, the, of your Bibles in the book of Ecclesiastes the words of the teacher, the words of the preacher. But it's rooted in collecting. And Solomon has been noted for his collection of people to dedicate the temple in particular. And so many of us think that it's actually Solomon who is the author of this book. There's a couple of other hints along that uh, way as well. Whoever he is, whoever the author is, and I do think that it is Solomon, he is a wise sage. Some have looked at the book and seen the author as a kind of a carnal cynic. I don't see it that way. I see that the author of the book is a wise sage. And if you go to the end of the book, a student actually writes the last few verses of the book, and he talks about how his teacher was wise and taught well and taught Proverbs and taught Proverbs well and was received well by those that he taught. So um, my, my take on the book is that we're reading someone who is wise, thoughtful, aged, an elder uh, who is worthy of asking advice. Okay, in light of what we heard earlier, and uh, someone that we can listen to and listen well to. I would characterize the book, I would define the book as higher wisdom. We talked about Proverbs as lower wisdom. A Job is higher wisdom. I would characterize this book as higher wisdom. And basically asking the question, what is life all about? Or, perhaps better, what is life not all about? And I think we can summarize it this way. Life lived for the creation, that is, under the sun, is a puff of wind, emptiness. And my favorite, and Rick Baker is sitting right here, a colleague of mine, uh, been the pastor at, uh, at Calvary in Oshawa for many, many years. He will know this. He knows what I'm going to say next. My favorite definition of vanity vanity is soap bubbles soap bubbles soap bubbles all is soap bubbles so life lived for the creation under the sun is a puff of wind emptiness soap bubbles but life lived for the god who lives above the sun is full and meaningful and satisfying and today we're going to look at a text that illustrates that. So if you have your Bible, we're going to read it. Uh, it'll be on the screen. But if you have a Bible, that would be good. Ecclesiastes chapter 7. I'm going to read verses 1 to 6. Ecclesiastes 7, 1 to 6. Hear the word of the Lord. A good name is better than fine perfume, and the day of death is better than the day of, of birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, for death is the destiny of everyone, and the living should take it to heart. Sorrow, or frustration, probably better sorrow, is better than laughter, because a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. It is better to heed the rebuke of a wise person than to listen to the song of fools, like the crackling of thorns under a pot, 
so is the laughter of fools. This too is soap bubbles. Puff of wind, here today, gone tomorrow. This is the reading of God's word. So in this passage, what we're going to find is three sufferings that lead to the better. Three sufferings that lead to the better. And, and the things that are the better are not necessarily bad. It's going to talk about wealth and riches, and that's not necessarily bad. It's going to talk about a fun or a happy time. That's not necessarily bad. I've, evidently, you had that last night, and that's not necessarily bad. At least we hope it's not. And the, the applause and, and affirmation and approval of others. These things are not necessarily bad. But sometimes there is a better. And to fit well into the creation and the way that God has made it, sometimes we have to endure the better, even though it might be difficult to do so. And this is what it is to perhaps live for the God who lives above the sun. The other thing we need to be reminded as we talk about, reminded of as we talk about these kinds of things that seem so practical and even mundane, and what we find in the book of Ecclesiastes and in Proverbs and in Job and in all the wisdom literature, that the teachings that we find of these sages is the way of faith. It is the way of Jesus. He is the embodiment of wisdom. And to live according to the wisdom teachings of the wisdom books and Ecclesiastes and even of this text itself is in fact the way of Christ. And it's the values and priorities of God's kingdom. And it is what it is to live a God-centered life. And I've used the illustration here before with you to have God at the center of our orbits and us in orbit around God, rather than us at the center of the orbit and God in orbit around us. That picture needs to be reversed and turned inside out so that we truly live what we call a God-centered, the big fancy word there is theocentric or Christocentric life. So let's look at the text. Three sufferings that lead to the better. And the first one is this. Verse 1, it is better to suffer for a good reputation than to obtain the evidences of wealth and prosperity. That's what's happening in verse 1. A good name is better than fine perfume, and the day of death is better than the day of birth. Now, there's a little, little kind of wordplay going on in the text here. The word for name is shem. And the word for perfume, some of your versions say oil, is the Hebrew word shemen. And so the author here is making a little wordplay. A good shem is better than fine shemen. And it kind of sticks with our minds and our thoughts when we think of that kind of little wordplay. It says, basically... A good reputation is better than the evidences of wealth. Fine perfume, fine oil, fine kinds of things that we have in our 
lives. The book of Proverbs says it this way. A good name is to be more desirable than great riches. To be esteemed is better than silver or gold. And so whether it's the nice car, the big house, the fine clothes, the ability to eat at the best restaurants, sometimes it's better to suffer to keep our integrity and our reputation than to gain those things. The next verse is, the next line of the verse is a little odd, isn't it? The day of your death is better than the day of your birth. That's a puzzle. What on earth do you do with that verse? It's in the Bible, so you got to do something with it. Well, the day of your birth, everybody's happy, right? Everybody owes, you know, they, they ooh and they ah, and they oh, isn't the baby cute? They count the fingers and the toes, and they say how much hair they've got on their, you know, it goes on and on and on, right? Okay. And day of your death, People cry, at least we hope they do. They're sad times, they're tough times. And we honored, and there were some tears here this morning. It's a celebration of remembrance, and it's not the easiest moment for us here. And I understand that. So why is it better? And the answer comes in, on the day of your death, that's when the eulogy is read. Right? That's when your life passes in review. I buried a man once. He was a member of the church I was pastoring. I don't know how I got to be a member, but he was a member by the time I got there, so I really couldn't do much about it. (laughs) And I buried this guy. And I went through the ceremony. Uh, Nobody would do the eulogy. I had to do the eulogy. I usually don't do that. I usually get somebody from the family to do the eulogy. I had to do it, so I did the best I could. And, I can't, and when the whole thing was over, I'm walking down the middle aisle of the funeral home, and this guy comes up to me. He just comes straight for me. And I saw him coming. I go, whoa, 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 what's going on here? And he put his finger under my nose. Preacher, you're nothing but a hypocrite. Whoa. I said, what do you mean? He says... And he named the guy. He says, he was nothing but a... And then the air went really blue. <laughs> I go, oh, okay, all right, all right. I kind of agreed with him on some of the things. I said, so who are you? He says, I'm his brother. <laughs> oh, man. Well, it just illustrates it, right? It illustrates the fact that whether you read a eulogy that you've tried to do well or whether it's actually honestly true, That's when life passes in review. That's when your integrity and your reputation and and who you are as a person goes through people's minds. And it doesn't matter what the guy up front is saying. You've got your own take. And you're reviewing that life yourself. And you you have your own memories for good or for bad. And he's saying here, it is better to suffer loss and pain for a good reputation than to get all the symbols of wealth and prosperity. And it is better to work hard so that at your eulogy, at your day of your death, when the eulogy is read, people will have good memories of you. And so, yeah, we don't cheat on the exam when everybody else does. 
We don't manipulate things to get the promotion when someone else does and gets that promotion. We pay our income taxes fairly when others don't and they have a, have a little extra cash. We play and be fair on the ball diamond, in the hockey rink, in the soccer field, even if it means losing the, losing the game. It means that we don't bait and switch. And you can think of all kinds of situations where your integrity and reputation, probably your, your desire for a good reputation and your integrity has caused you to lose, has caused you to suffer, has caused you to not get ahead perhaps in the way that you thought you should have. It's painful, it's suffering, but in the end we follow the path of Christ who himself chose to suffer for the better. And because of his suffering, we are the recipients of all that is good found in Christ and God. So we're working on the better. And the first situation is this. It is better to suffer pain and loss, better to suffer for a good reputation than to gain the evidences of wealth and prosperity. Our writer goes on and he points to a second domain, second area of suffering, and it's this. It is better to suffer through mourning than to enjoy festivity or mirth. Verses 2 to 4. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. For death is the destiny of everyone, and the living should take this to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter because a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. And he's picked up on the funeral, the funeral home idea from verse 1, but he moves it to kind of a second level. And he's not saying necessarily that festivity and mirth are bad. And even throughout the book, Solomon celebrates, eat and drink and to enjoy the good gifts that, that God brings to us. And he says, if every man, any man has a little bit of wealth, to enjoy those possessions and to enjoy those good times, these are gifts of God. So it's not that he's putting these kinds of things down, but he is saying there are times when you got to roll it back. That's the wisdom move. And there are times when it's better to sit through a funeral as tough as that is. And yeah, today's service was not all that easy, but it's good. And as I said at the beginning, I've told a few pastor friends about this, and it's interesting to get the reactions of, well, yeah, good. Some thought it was a good idea. Some thought, man, it must have been a real downer. Well, yeah, but sometimes you got to face those hard times and talk about those hard times and maybe have a bit of a, a, a more somber service so that, in fact, we can think about the things that RJ has already talked about and, and, uh, and, and, what, uh, and what we heard sung about on a couple of occasions here. Better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. Why? For death is des destiny of everyone, and the living should take it to heart. I've led many funerals over my time as a pastor, and inevitably, when I lead a funeral, I, I, at the beginning of the service, I'll walk through four reasons why we gather. Here are the reasons why we have gathered. And I usually articulate them somewhere along the line of, 
We have gathered to, to mourn, and we have. And to shortchange and to uh, not allow a full expression of grief is a huge mistake. Lament psalms are, in fact, the largest category of psalms that we have. They are, there are more lament psalms and praise psalms and thanksgiving psalms and psalms of trust. And I think it's important that when we take a shortcut on lament, on grief, we do not do God's people well. So we do gather to mourn, but we mourn in hope, of course. We gather to comfort, and we speak to one another, and we care for one another, we cry together, we give each other hugs, and we help each other journey through the pain. We gather to remember, and that's where the eulogy is read, and whatever is being read, hopefully it's good, but we all have our own memories of the person that has passed. But the fourth point I normally make when I do a funeral is we gather to contemplate our own destiny. I mean, when we are at the front, we see the casket, we're talking about the person, it cannot help but cause us to think, hmm, there's going to be a day when I'm going to be there. I know when I'm meeting with the family and we're often in the casket room, this may be a little sadistic, but as we're moving among the caskets and I'm trying to stay back because I don't want to have, have any choice or any decision or any voice in any decision, otherwise I get blamed for it. So, but, but as I'm moving through the casket room, I'm kind of looking around and saying, I think I'd look good in that one or that one or that one. It forces us to contemplate our own destiny, right? It's a huge visual and emotional reminder that every one of us will be there someday. I was traveling, we were traveling as a family. We were coming home from church, actually, one day. And uh, I had, this is back when my kids were quite a bit smaller. Very, and uh, we were driving home after church one Sunday, and in a, we had a van. I have five kids, and so they're in the back, and they're doing the things that kids do. And we're driving, and we drove past the cemetery. We've driven past the cemetery numerous times. But anyhow, we're driving past the cemetery, and all of a sudden, this voice from my daughter, Kristen, uh, came from the back, hey, Dad, what's that? And, you know, and she was pointing to the cemetery. And I have no idea what, this brought, what brought this on. I said, we've been past the cemetery many times, but anyhow. So, hey, Dad, what's that? Uh, it's, a, it's a cemetery. Oh, is that where you teach? <laughs> No, Kristen, I teach in a seminary, not a cemetery, all right? Okay, so now a lot of people think that seminaries are cemeteries, but anyhow. Right? No, it's a ce- what's a cemetery? It's a place where they bury dead people. Oh. You going to die, Dad? Well, probably sometime. When? <laughs> Don't know, Kristen. Hopefully not soon. And the conversation kind of went on throughout the rest of the trip home. But you want to know something? That conversation went on for the rest of the day. Over lunch, into the afternoon, Chris and Kate coming back, the other cats coming, and, and just asking more and more questions about that whole scene. They had been to dozens of birthday parties and all kinds of other things. No, never coming out of a birthday party did they come and start asking those kinds of questions. 
Better to go to a house of mourning, better to confront the realities of death than to go to a house of feasting. Death is the destiny of everyone, and the living should take it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter because a sad face is good for the soul, good for the heart. And sometimes even in the whole notion of what it is as we grieve, we, we all of a sudden, our, our true persons come out. And the deepest feelings, and when we put our head on the shoulder of someone and we weep, we all of a sudden get this notion of embrace, we get this notion of care, get this notion of allowing ourselves to be who we are and we don't have to keep the facade up. Death is a debt we all must pay. And it's no clearer for us than when we visit the funeral home or sit through a service or stand beside the grave and pronounce dust to dust, ashes to ashes, so we commit the body of our brother or sister to the ground looking for the day of the great resurrection. And it keeps us humble, doesn't it? We're all mortal, rich or poor, or famous or obscure. We will all die, whether we have a pyramid built over us or an obscure grave in the corner of a field. And we need to take this to heart on how we live now and how we prepare, prepare for that event. And let me just pause and say that the best way we can prepare for that event is, event is to know Christ. To receive by faith eternal life with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Simple faith. Faith as tiny as a grain of mustard seed. And I would say to us all, the best way to prepare for that event is in fact to believe and receive Christ as personal savior. So we're looking at the better. Sorrow is better than laughter. A sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. And it's better at times to suffer through all of that. This is the second, it is better. The first, it is better to suffer for a good reputation rather to enjoy the evidences of wealth. Second, it is better to, to suffer through mourning and sorrow than at times enjoy good times and fun and, and pleasure. The third, it is better, is found in verses five and six. It is better to suffer the pain of a wise person's rebuke than to enjoy the accolades of fools. And again, there's a little play on words here. It is better, verse 5, it is better to heed the rebuke of a wise person than to listen to the song of fools like the crackling of thorns under a pot. And the words are seer and sirim. And the crackling, the seer, is better, is, is, is the seer of, the, of, of a fire, the crackling of a fire under a serene, a pot. And so again, a little, a little rhyme going on there in order to help uh, the people who read and understand Hebrew to remember that whole thing. And the affirmations and compliments are compared to uh, uh, putting uh, just tiny sticks under a pot and, and lighting them and they, they flare up for a moment and psh, down and they don't do really any good. The pot never gets hot. But we, yeah, we all enjoy a compliment. We all enjoy people commending us and celebrating us and honoring us. Those are good moments. 
And we're not sure we like the corrections or the rebuke, someone pulling us aside and saying, hey, that was not good, or you could have done better, or you blew that and you didn't need to, or that was not appropriate, or you were wrong, or what you said and did have responded, didn't responded. Again, I remember in the late 80s, this is going quite a ways back, I was appointed to be the interim president of London Baptist Bible College and Seminary when our president, Dr. Jerry Ben, uh, stepped back from that role and took a pastorate. And I was appointed to be the interim until we found uh, our next president, who eventually came to be uh, Mr. Marvin Brubaker. And during that time, I was, we had a, our typical banquet. I think it was a Christmas banquet that we normally had. And I was the MC. As the president, I, I took on the role of being the MC of that event that night. And for whatever reason, I don't know why, I took on the role of a stand-up comic. And I was good, just in case you're wondering. I can do it. And so the evening went well, it was a lovely evening, and I did my thing. And of course, afterwards, you do your debrief, and I met with the leadership of the school on the next day, and my, I was in the president's office, and we gathered around. There was about eight of us in the room, and yeah, it was a good evening, yeah, the food was great, we had a lot of fun, a lot of laughter, it's good to see this person, that person, someone else, and we went around the room, and everybody was complimenting the whole event and some of them me. One man remained silent. His name was Art. And Art never looked up. He just had his head down the whole time. And I had a high respect for Art. He was a little bit older than me. had been my student, but he was just a, just a fine, fine gentleman. He looked down the whole time. Finally, I said, Art, what are you thinking? He looked down again, he looked up, he looked down again, and looked up. Then he said, oh, David, oh, David, you made a fool of yourself. Here you were to be the president of this institution. You were an embarrassment to this institution. You were an embarrassment to, the, to, to Christ. You were an embarrassment to yourself. Ouch! You could have at least waited till after the meeting to say this to me. And you know what? He was absolutely right. It is better to heed the rebuke of a wise person than to listen to the song of fools. Like the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This too is soap bubbles. Here today, gone tomorrow. Yeah. And you know what? We've all got lots of compliments along the way. I have, you have. I don't remember most of them, if any of them, but I certainly remember that one. And that was 1989. And it has stuck with me all these years. It was hard. I needed to suffer through that. And because of it, I'm a better person. It was better. Stephen Curtis Chapman writes this story. 
I had stacked some rocks out of this little place in the woods, a place I had gone to pray, desperate for God to do something to show up to have some, some sort of breakthrough. As I was praying, I remember smelling cedar so strong that it distracted me from my prayer. I looked around to see what this little cedar tree, or see this little cedar tree that had been snapped in half by my, because of my stepping in there. And this is where the smell was coming from. I had a little notepad out there with me, and I wrote down, I wrote down these words, the fragrance of the broken. We have all been broken. We've all been through tough times. We've all suffered for the better, as painful as that is. So what, we, what can we take away from all this? Well, first of all, we have an encounter, with, an encounter with God in Christ in a new and fresh way when we choose the better, when we choose the moral and ethical high ground, when we choose the serious contemplation of life and death, when we choose the exposure of sorrow and grief, when we choose the pain of a well-placed rebuke. Two things happen. One, God is glorified. We gain the sense that God smiles in grace and blessing. It is the way of Jesus. It is the path of the kingdom of God. And our King and Savior smiles, and we are blessed. But when we choose this, and when we go this way, and when we receive this kind of wisdom, we also experience and encounter the sustaining grace of God in ways that we could have never have experienced in any other way. It is in those moments of seeming, seeming loss and pain and discomfort that we, that we experience the presence of God in powerful ways. And it is often in lament that we find our deepest praise. Often in lament that we experience the presence and power of God as at, as at no other time. And as I said to you before, when we look, read the book of Psalms and the voice of, of prayer that goes up from us to God, the voice that dominates the whole book is the voice of lament. And we, we experience that sustaining grace in powerful ways. So the first, we have an encounter with God and Christ in a new and fresh way when we choose the better, and often the better involves suffering. Secondly, we experience a message of good news. There's gospel here. We can say to the world, in Christ, in biblical godliness, in Christian morality and ethics and spirituality and wisdom, in living the fear of God, the fear of the Lord, living in wisdom, we can live skillfully in the world that God has created. We can live well, even though at times it doesn't seem like that we are. God has created this world with these moral, ethical, and spiritual structures at its core, with lady wisdom seated at his side. And when we follow his will and wisdom and, and worship, even in the pain, we will live well. Not painlessly, but well. And it is the way of Jesus. It is the way of eternal life, of Christ's glory and his glorious kingdom. And this is good news. It is good news for the world that does not know Christ. And it's good news for us who are part of God's people. But there's also challenge here too, isn't there? Some of us, we need to think differently. There's a worldview shift. It's not the norm to pass up opportunities for advancement, wealth, seeming success, getting ahead, and perhaps a bit, giving a bit of a shrug to personal integrity or reputation or credibility. It's not the norm to embrace times of loss and pain and expose our feelings. It's not the norm to express and welcome, to accept and, and, and welcome rebuke and correction, but our sage teaching us it is godly wisdom, it is biblical truth, it is life in the fear of the Lord, it is the way of Jesus. 
So how do we respond to all this? You know, I can't speak for you. I can speak for me. I've told you a couple of stories that have affected me deeply. I don't know what's passing through your mind right now. I don't know what the Spirit is saying to you. But I do believe in the Spirit, and I do believe in the working power of God, uh, of the Word of God, empowered by the Spirit. And so I simply say to you at this point, allow the Spirit to speak. Listen to what he's saying. What is penetrating your heart, your mind, your thoughts at this moment? And I simply say, let the word speak and by the power of the Holy Spirit, choose to respond in the way that he prompts us all to do. God bless you all.